Hello, and welcome to Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. Each week, we are here to educate you guys, to talk to you guys, to challenge and encourage you along your journey of intermittent fasting, low-carb eating, keto, feeling wonderful, being hot and healthy, all these things. You can check us out at fastinglane.com and on Twitter and Instagram at Fasting Lane. Our guest this week is the fabulous Miss Lily Nichols. Lily is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified diabetes educator who has devoted her career to researching real food nutrition for pregnancy and gestational diabetes. What she's uncovered is a wide gap between the current prenatal guidelines of what's optimal for both the mother and the baby, and her work has actually changed national guidelines. Lily, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Lily told me that she's getting over a little throat thing and her voice is extra sexy today. Is that right, Lily? Is that what you were saying (laughs) earlier? Okay, good. We got that Demi Moore rasp happening, so I'm excited about that. Um, But Lily is actually the author of best-selling books called Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Let's do that again. Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily, like us, believes that the standard prenatal nutrition advice is long due for an overhaul. Evidence is mounting that real food offers optimal nutrition for mamas and babies. And um, you can find her online at Lily, that's with one L and a Y, L-I-L-Y, Nichols, R-D-N.com, our social media, Lily, L-I-L-Y, Nichols, R-D-N. So Lily, here you are. I've heard that you're pretty fabulous. Our people actually Thank found you. you and reached out. Um, and, and we want to hear about you. How did you get to where you are and discover the need for better prenatal nutritional guidelines? Well, I have worked in the prenatal sphere in a lot of different capacities in my career. So from the public policy level, I worked with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program to clinical practice, working one-on-one with hundreds and hundreds of women, um, many of whom had gestational diabetes, but all sorts of pregnancy complications or uncomplicated pregnancies, to a lot of research and consulting and speaking as well. And of course, now writing um, my two books that you mentioned. And really, it's in all of these capacities that I've been able to sort of take in, you know, what are the guidelines? How were they set? How hard is it to change guidelines? Because I can tell you, even on the state level, it's very difficult to elicit change just with all the levels of bureaucracy that exist on setting um, guidelines or changing outdated ones. And ultimately, I mean, the, the main reason I think my work is now, you know, is what it is today is seeing how poorly the conventional gestational diabetes guidelines in particular fare in clinical practice. Hold on, let me cough. Sure. Okay. I have this like frog thing that keeps like coming up and it's like, eh. So in gestational diabetes, the, I was able to see how the conventional guidelines work and how they don't work. (laughs) And in many cases, at least 40% of the time, and this is not just my experience, but also what we see in the literature, the conventional guidelines fail to adequately control blood sugar. And of course, being somebody who was already open to real food and already aired on at least the moderately low carb side of the spectrum, 
um, I had to wonder, you know, did these people fail diet therapy or did the diet fail them? And ultimately it led me to research whether or not, you know, this whole lower carb real food thing might be okay in pregnancy. So you take a closer look at the, the guidelines. So first looking at like, do we really have to recommend a minimum level of carbohydrates in pregnancy or not? And then looking at all the other macronutrients and micronutrients and ultimately seeing, wow, there's, there's a lot of work that can be done here. Yeah. I, I have no idea what it takes to change guidelines. Um, I think like as just a regular lay person like myself, not a medical professional, I just like see these guidelines as something that was put out there that I never examined, like I never questioned it. I just, that, that makes sense. Somebody smarter than me figured this out at some point. And then you go along and I, I think I saw something on dietdoctor.com last week about how um, the guidelines, the protocol for treating diabetes as a whole has done zero to improve the state of diabetes since 2005. And so I guess you get to a point where maybe in 2019, you'd start saying, perhaps we should re-examine this. Perhaps we should be looking at this and, and seeing if we should change it. So first of all, right. how long have you been in this? Like, how did you start in this and how long have you been examining this? Gosh, I mean, I've been in the field for over a decade. I'd have to like do some math here. <laughs> but, um, I, I think the trouble with the guidelines, and again, I've only worked at the state level on guidelines, and the, the major guidelines I was able to elicit change in are actually in another country. It was what in the country? public that a doctor who was recommended to me on Twitter, of all places, um, was, was asking for you know, advice on what would make for you know, the best guidelines on gestational diabetes um, nutritionally. And they got my book and were open to the information and saw the benefit in practice. And I don't know, maybe they're a small enough country open to change. I don't know. But they actually, um, in the Czech Republic, removed a mandatory minimum level of carbohydrates during pregnancy. And in fact, instead set a cap on the maximum <laughs> level of carbohydrates that should be consumed. Which is really, that is really yeah. cool. Like I've yeah, had so many cool. crazy experiences on Twitter. I met Dr. <laughs> Jason Fong on Twitter. Um, right. My first book was published because of Twitter. I'm a, I'm a huge Twitter fan. So I love it. Like yeah. I think so many times it gives us the ability to talk to these people that we never would have had a chance to in our life before. And it can lead to, to really big things. And mm -hmm. so you changed guidelines in a country with this doctor. I mean, that's amazing. Heck I mean, yeah. I can't say I personally did, but my work but had an influence. And so that's that. especially cool. Yeah. All right. So I don't actually know what the standard prenatal nutrition advice is. I have been pregnant once. I have an almost 13-year-old daughter. Um, I'm pretty sure I did everything wrong when I was pregnant. Um, <laughs> I had been very overweight before. And I had had bariatric surgery. I'd had lap band to help me to lose weight to get pregnant. I had uh, fertility treatments. I got pregnant and actually during my pregnancy, I took probably the best care of my body I had taken as far as I worked out three days a week. I went to a chiropractor once a week. I got mm -hmm. enough rest, but I ate a lot. I ate lots of carbs and lots of sugar because that was something I'd always done. However, while I was pregnant, I actually lost weight. Um, I was probably like maybe, maybe 225 pounds at the time. And I think I got down to like 215 mm -hmm. um, while I was pregnant. And 
I don't, I don't know what was going on there, but like, I, I didn't, I don't think I knew what the prenatal guidelines were, except like listeria, like don't eat um, raw fish and don't eat um, some lunch meat and things like that. Right. Uh, and I took prenatal vitamins and I went to the doctor, but like, actually, what is the nutrition advice for prenatal? I, I don't know. <laughs> what are the standard guidelines? Uh, well, it depends how detailed you want to get. Um, the not that detailed. That, like, uh, let's I say mean, I'm yeah, like, if we not. want to go into the foods to avoid thing and whether or not yeah. that's evidence-based, that opens up a whole other can of worms. Yeah. From just like a general calories, macronutrients, that sort of a perspective, we're talking, uh, we assume there's not much, you know, energy need change in the first trimester and starting in the second trimester, calorie needs go up a little bit, maybe like three up to 500 calories a day. It's still up for debate in the research, but you can pretty safely do an extra 300 or so calories a day. Um, they do, in order to meet that requirement, typically recommend slightly higher protein and then a little more carbohydrates than usual, but still in a pretty high range, like 45 to 65% of calories coming from carbohydrates. And of course, you still have to limit your fat because, you know, everybody is afraid of fat in, in the conventional nutrition world. That's, that's it in a nutshell. Okay. So why are those wrong? And what foods are important for pregnant, pregnant women to eat? Like, what should we make sure of? I think what I'm hearing is it's not really important for you to make sure you get some bread when you're pregnant or ever. <laughs> Like for the most part, right? Well, the guidelines would tell you to get more bread, to get your, you know, seven to 11 servings of grains a day or carbohydrates a day. The, the challenge here, I think, is that if we look at it from, I like to reverse engineer what would be what I'd consider like an optimal pregnancy diet. So instead of taking this top down, this is what some expert says based on super limited data because the guidelines as they are set now is based on very limited data and not much data on pregnant women specifically. A lot of it is based on data on men that has then been extrapolated to account for <clears throat> the energy demands of pregnancy, estimated increased nutrient requirements for the baby, but it's, it's pretty limited evidence. Yeah. And so when I look at it from sort of like a reverse engineering perspective, um, I like to look at the micronutrients first. So like how much B12 and iron and omega-3s and choline, looking at current research, by the way, because a lot has changed, especially in the last 20 years. For example, we know that choline requirements are probably double what they previously were thought to be for pregnancy. Vitamin B12 needs are actually triple what we previously thought they should be in pregnancy. So there's a lot of changes here that we need to look, take into account. Look at where do we find those things in food. Let's build a palatable diet based on those foods. Put together some sample days of, of eating that fit within the anticipated caloric requirement for a pregnant person. And then let's look at where the macros fall. And if you actually prioritize the micronutrients first, especially some of these hard to get ones and some of these ones where we now know from new research that needs for them are significantly higher than previously thought, what you end up with is a moderately low carb diet. You definitely don't end up with 45 to 65% of the calories in your diet coming from carbs. Because if you do so, and by the way, the guidelines only say get half of your grains whole. So eat a whole bunch of carbs, a bunch of them can be refined carbohydrates. We give you the green light for that. And then 
let's see, like, are you going to meet your iron needs? No. Are you going to meet your B12 needs? Eh, barely, maybe, if you're incorporating enough animal foods. But even still, the guidelines are so scared of animal foods that they're telling you, you know, only lean meat, limit red meat, you know, no full fat dairy products, take the yolks out of your eggs. They're giving you advice that's automatically limiting your intake of micronutrients. And that's really where it goes wrong. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some specific foods. Somebody's pregnant. Can they have eggs or is that a safe thing to eat? Absolutely. Actually, eggs are one of my top recommendations for pregnancy. And like raw eggs or nobody should eat raw eggs? I hear you shouldn't eat raw eggs because it's in cookie dough and then that's what spoils the cookie dough. But like, well, secretly, so everybody eats cookie dough. Right. So there is like, there is a, a small risk of developing, of getting salmonella. Eggs can be contaminated with salmonella. Salmonella is something that is killed off by heat. So that's why they recommend conventionally cook your eggs until fully cooked. Yolk is, you know, solid, hard boiled, over hard, scrambled. That's what they recommend. It actually turns out that eggs account for only 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U.S., which is quite low. Raw fruits and vegetables account for 46%, okay? And nobody yeah, it's been hilarious. Them. Like, not hilarious, right. but it's been so kind of interesting So the chances that year. an egg will actually be contaminated with salmonella right. is pretty slim. It's like anywhere from, it's up to like 1 in 30,000, okay? So okay. it's pretty minimal. Um, eating raw egg white is a little bit, it can interfere with your absorption of biotin. So that's one that's kind of eh. But as far as eggs with runny yolks, it's very, very slim risk that you're going to be, okay. have an issue with salmonella. So, you know, it's up to you. If it skeeves you out and gives you anxiety, certainly cook your eggs till they're fully cooked and that's fine. If you say only like eggs that have runny yolks and you're otherwise not going to eat them, yeah, the the risk benefit equation is in your favor to get the choline and nutrients in eggs versus avoid them entirely for this really really tiny risk right. of a food safety problem. What about salmon and types of fish for for pregnancy? Is that good stuff to be having? It's absolutely good stuff to be having. I mean, you're getting lots of DHA and selenium and iodine and iron and B12 and all sorts of goodness in fish. There's a twofold concern conventionally on fish is one is that some types of fish can accumulate more mercury just because they're exposed to it in the environment that tends to be larger fish so i actually do agree with the fda guidelines to avoid shark tilefish king mackerel um large tuna more than six ounces or so per week there's one more that i'm missing off of my list off the top of my head but uh, there's only a, a select group of fish that are actually going to be something you want to avoid like across the board. But there's lots of fish that are actually pretty low in mercury that would be just fine to consume, which would include like sardines, salmon, um, cod. Um, those would all be fine and actually add significantly to your nutrient intake. And Got then the it. second concern with fish is raw, raw fish. And so that's one of those things where if you're going to eat it raw, you know, you want to obtain it from a reputable establishment. Um, but if it's sushi grade fish, most sushi grade fish has been flash frozen and frozen for long enough that it inactivates parasites. So as long as it's been handled well after the fact at the you know, sushi establishment or whatever, you should be okay. And there's actually quite a few countries that condone eating sushi in pregnancy, including the UK, by the way. They have it on their NHS website. I didn't NHS know that. Website. Man, yeah. I wish I had so, known that when I was pregnant. <laughs> that would have been good so, information. Yeah. 
the U.S. is like very, very scared of food safety issues in pregnancy, even though it's right. very, very rare that something will be happen will happen to somebody. But I think it's more yeah. of like a they they'd rather nobody take the risk ever. Whereas some other countries have a bit more of a hmm, a, a balanced view of it, in my opinion. So I mean, Got I think it. it's up to you. You just gotta know like what's the rate of foodborne illness for a particular food has it been handled well trust your nose like your nose is so like sense of smell is so heightened in pregnancy oh my gosh something yes. smells out like you're not going to eat like spoiled sushi in pregnancy like your body yeah. won't let you you, know what you I mean? smell it from two so, like two blocks away exactly so i That's think so some of the risks have been like way overblown versus taking a bit more of a moderate you know common sense approach to it okay how about bone broth is that a good thing to have when you're pregnant excellent thing to have when you're pregnant actually there's why there's actually so there's the main reason is that there's actually a, an amino acid called glycine that's found in really high amounts in bone broth or anything that's made yeah. from the bone skin and connective tissue of animal foods and this is an amino acid that's really important for babies' growth the development of their skeleton connective tissue yeah. skin right like creates like is one way to think about it yeah um also important for your body's detoxification systems, digestion, um, so much. And glycine actually becomes what's called conditionally essential in pregnancy. So like a normal non-pregnant person, they don't really have to worry about glycine. But when you're pregnant, you actually have to consume enough from your diet directly because your body can't make up for the needs on its own. And you know, there's a lot of things changing in your body in pregnancy. Not only are you growing a new baby, but like your skin is stretching, your joints are changing, your pelvic yeah. floor is adapting in preparation yeah. for birth. And all of those things require higher amounts of glycine. So bone broth, I think, is a very convenient, easy way for people to, to get that into their diet. Okay, cool. Okay, I want to talk about something a little bit controversial, which is fasting and pregnancy. Yeah. Um, if I think back to 13, 14 years ago, when I was pregnant and I try to figure out why I lost weight because man, I was never losing weight. I was, I was still really struggling with obesity. If I think back to it, somebody told me, even if you want to like get less morning sickness, just make sure to eat when you're hungry. Cause it's actually the baby saying it's hungry, which is kind of counterintuitive because you're nauseated. And I followed that advice and I never got sick in my entire pregnancy. I got, I think sick to my stomach one time and took care of it. Like didn't, didn't have an issue. I feel like during my pregnancy, I ate less often. So I mm. feel like when I was hungry, I ate. And I ate very specific things that, not, I mean, not always good things that I was hungry mm. for. Instead of eating all the, all the, all the time. Mm -hmm. um, which I haven't, I haven't really thought about this until now. And mm. I wonder if some of that is because I lost weight. So like when we answer this question, people... We're not suggesting that people who are pregnant fast for days. I'm asking the question, if a pregnant person wakes up and they feel sick to their stomach and don't want to eat breakfast, or if eating breakfast makes them feel better, do you think that they have a viable option to do intermittent fasting, meaning they skip breakfast or they skip dinner? I'm talking about like skipping one of the meals of the day. Is mm -hmm. that an unsafe thing to do in pregnancy? So I think the way that you framed that question is perfect because you're framing it from the perspective of 
this person is listening to their body and their body signals is telling them I'm hungry or not hungry and yeah. should you listen to it and so from that perspective I agree with you if you wake up you feel sick to your stomach you don't want to eat you know that eating is going to make you sick and vomit and you're better off just waiting till it passes and then eating something when your body is ready do it yeah. okay for from that standpoint I don't see any problem with it from my experience, the majority of people in pregnancy feel better having something small, like having a little bit of something often helps offset some of the nausea. Yeah. Um, so if it's, I agree. I, that was the same the nausea. Yeah. Like the longer you go, you're already kind of prone to low blood sugar in the first trimester anyways, just physiologically. And so it can make it hard for people to go long spans of time between eating um, although it later in pregnancy, sometimes that gets a bit easier because your body actually sort of pushes you more towards ketosis, um, more easily and more frequently. But then you have the issue of your stomach getting full too fast because there's a baby pushing way up. Right. So that can make it yeah. difficult for people who want to do, say you wanted to do like an 18, six intermittent fast. Like it might be hard to fit all of your food for the whole day in six hours, just because like, your digestion has slowed down. There's not much room in your stomach. It's probably hard to eat like two gigantic meals that would fit in all the you know, caloric needs and micronutrient needs for the day just in those two small amounts. Yeah, um, that's a good point. And so everybody listen, when we ask about this, I, I mean, I do think that there's people out there who are worried about weight gain, who are worried that they're gaining too much weight when they're pregnant. They don't want to get into an unhealthy situation. They're concerned about these things and they're wondering if intermittent fasting is something they can do during pregnancy. And it, it sounds like our advice, and I'm not a doctor at all, um, is you have to talk to a doctor if that's what you feel like you should do. And you have to listen to your body because you're going to be getting all kinds of messages from your own body and from the baby's needs. And sometimes you're just going to feel I think too sick to eat. And sometimes I think you'll feel sick and nauseated and really need to eat something. Right. And so I think setting yourself up a plan with like, I'm pregnant and I'm going to intermittent fast and I'm going to do 18, six every day. I honestly got to say, you're probably setting yourself up for some disappointment because there's so many things changing in your body and changing with the baby each day that yep. you may have different needs day to day. And don't oh, you want to just sure. like, feel good about yourself? Like you want to feel like you're doing a good job. So uh, you yeah. know, if you want to skip breakfast, skip breakfast. If you want to have two breakfasts that day, have two breakfasts that day. Like that, I mean, yeah. I think you got to just stay open and, and listen to your body. And for some reason, that was the only time that I was really good at listening to my body until like the past two years. So I credit my mm, daughter for, for, for doing that. I, I think yeah. I was just like trying to listen because somebody else was in there. All right. Yeah. I will say before yeah. we move on, I actually have a pretty detailed article on this topic on intermittent oh. fasting and pregnancy on my That's blog. Awesome. So if you want to link to that, ultimately my stance is I, I believe intermittent fasting beyond like I'm done eating for the day and then you sleep and don't eat during the night and then wake up and eat whenever you feel hungry enough to eat beyond yeah. that, like forcibly trying to stick to some hour arbitrary, like hour schedule of eating and not eating while you're ignoring your body's cues. I think that's a mismatch. I think we really need to prioritize the micronutrients. So if you want to link to that article, people can get a little more yeah, information and I link it. out to the research on it, then um, yeah. 
Yeah, please send that to us. We'd love to put that in here. Sure. So, okay, gestational diabetes. What what is it? Like I think it's just diabetes when you're pregnant. And how can you prevent it? What's what's the scoop that we need to know on that? Yeah, so gestational diabetes is diabetes that, or high blood sugar, I should say, that is either first recognized, so identified, or first developed during pregnancy, which can actually, there's a bit of nuance there, can actually be two different things, because technically that, that definition encompasses people who already have some underlying blood sugar issues that are just being identified in pregnancy. Um, which is a pretty significant portion in my experience of people who actually get the diagnosis. Um, other times it can be something that is really a phenomenon of pregnancy where you have just sort of the trifecta of like pregnancy weight gain, pregnancy insulin resistance, and maybe your pancreas isn't quite up to the challenge of producing enough insulin to keep that blood sugar at a normal level and you get the diagnosis. So it can be two different scenarios. Okay, that makes what sense. What was the second part of the question? So, so what can you do? Like, is there something you can do to prevent it? There's something that you can do to okay. reverse it? Like, what, what should you do? What can help? Yeah, so as far as prevention, it's like, that's the million dollar question. So, not, I mean, we don't have a surefire way to prevent it in every single case. Um, we do know that there are some components to it that are out of your control, like family history of diabetes, um, age, for example, since insulin resistance tends to be higher as you get older. If there's a history of PCOS, um, there's a number of different risk factors that are just like, that sucks. <laughs> you know, yeah. you might be at higher risk. And then there are some risk factors that might be in your control um, somewhat. So if, if you're able to maintain a healthy weight prior to pregnancy, that sets you up for a lower likelihood of, of developing gestational diabetes. Um, weight gain during pregnancy is somewhat related to it in some instances, but not all. There can be some micronutrient um, interactions there too. So like deficiency in vitamin D and magnesium um, seem to play a role in the development of, of gestational diabetes. And then there's also uh, some food stuff as well. So if you, if you keep filling up on lots and lots of carbohydrates, um, that tends to coincide with more weight gain in pregnancy as well, but it can also kind of like put a strain on your pancreas, which is already trying really, really, really hard to pump out a lot of insulin during pregnancy to keep your blood sugar at a normal level. So if you're not like constantly stoking the fire with lots and lots of carbohydrates, um, you might actually be able to avoid high blood sugar altogether. Lily, I think you said that so sweetly. I, I, I mean, I know when I was pregnant, I had a ton of sugar. I had horrible <laughs> eating habits. I don't know yeah. how. I was pre-diabetic before. I don't know how I didn't get gestational diabetes, and I'm, I'm very fortunate. But like, knowing what I know now, I, I would think if I was pregnant again, which I'm 45, I'm not going to be pregnant again. But right. if I were, I would strive to not eat sugar. I would strive to not eat massive amounts of donuts like I did last time. <laughs> and I feel like that would give me a leg up on lessening yeah. my chance for that. Cause I mostly ate carbs and I ate tons of sugar and I regret that. Um, but knowing what I know now, like, I think that would be the, the best way to give myself a chance to have uh, yeah, it, a better shot at not having gestational diabetes. It gives you a leg up. And then even yeah. if you do get the diagnosis of gestational diabetes, because sometimes it is just an unavoidable situation, 
Yeah. You know, some, some of the things that people are most concerned about is, will I need insulin? Like, can I control this with diet alone? And I will say there's actually been quite a bit of research on this showing that you can actually lower your chances of requiring insulin by 50% just by eating like fewer carbs and prioritizing low glycemic carbs when you do eat carbs. So more of like the vegetables, the nuts and seeds, even some legumes or beans, like those are lower glycemic than the grains, for example, your avocados, which yeah, they're high fat, but they do have carbs, mostly fiber. So hence the low glycemic, right? Yeah. You can actually sort of um, stack the deck in your favor to be able to manage it without medication in some cases, not all, of course. Okay. Last question. Breastfeeding. How can moms get their breast milk to be as nutrient dense as possible? I was talking with my cousin's wife, who's on her third baby. She is a committed lady. I really look up to her much braver than I am with my one. Um, and she was starting to eat low carb, right? And she was concerned that the, the breast milk would not be good. It, it, it looked different. And um, after a period of time, it, it worked out really well. It was really good in her situation. She felt great. The baby felt great. But that fear and that adjustment, um, I know there's a lot of fear and, and, and people want to understand. So, so what do you suggest as far as moms having their breast milk be as nutrient dense as possible? What should they be eating? Yeah, so this is kind of a, you know, it's a controversial topic, right? Because people okay. are always like, you know, there's a fear that if we start talking about nutrient levels in breast milk, that we're going to make breastfeeding moms question their milk. Ah. Um, or we also kind of want to avoid making it seem more complicated than it needs to be, right? Like Got it. breast milk is always going to be good stuff. Let's first of all, put that out there. Yeah. There is indeed research though that shows that the nutrient levels in breast milk are not fixed especially for the micronutrients hold on one second <coughs> so if you look at the macronutrients of breast milk so carbohydrates fat and protein those stay relatively stable the fat is the most influenced by dietary intake so you can slightly boost the fat content of it with more dietary fat the micronutrients though is where there is a significant impact of what a mom eats and her nutrient stores on the levels in breast milk. So essentially okay, the advice is the same as pregnancy. Keep eating Got really it. well, keep taking your prenatal, at least for the period of exclusive breastfeeding, and then you'll know that your milk is, has you know, enough of the nutrients. Got it. Look, to be honest, I didn't know that was a controversial question. So thank you for teaching me that. I breastfed for six months, it was the longest six months of my life. My daughter could not latch on. I had to oh, pump. I was yeah. traveling for business. This was 13 years ago when the pumps were not friendly and you'd had to sit in a bathroom stall on a business trip. And um, so, yeah, let me just talk to any woman right now who is yeah. breastfeeding. Man, nice job. Like whatever you're doing, like nice job. You're my hero. <laughs> I think you are amazing. So, uh, you know, yep, way to go. Breastfeeding. I have a newborn right now currently breastfeeding. So I feel, I feel the, feel the pain, right? And yeah. And props to you for sticking with pumping for so long. I can't stand uh, pumping. So it, it was the best day of my life when I stopped, to be honest yeah. with you. I was, I was so happy. So look, if you're breastfeeding, nice job. If there's reasons you can't breastfeed and you found another way to feed your baby. Nice job. Nice job being a mom. So <laughs> yeah. nice job on all of it. Lily, thank you so much for being here and answering all of our questions about pregnancy and diet and fasting. We really appreciate your expertise. You bet. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite.
Thank you. And one more time, Lily, will you let them know where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me at lilynicholsrdn.com. Um, you can also find there's a free chapter of my book, Real Food for Pregnancy, there um, for download if you want to check that out. And then on social media, I'm most active on Instagram these days, and it's at lilynicholsrdn. Perfect. Thank you so much, Lily. And thank, thank you all you. for being here on the Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. You can get more tips on fasting, keto, low carb, living a happy life at fastinglane.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at fastinglane. And until next time, to your health and happiness.